happening now? We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 214, all on the same Google Doc from April the 17th, 2021. My name is Wes Fryer. I am coming to you from very breezy Oklahoma City, where the wind has been howling down the plains, and we're just glad the tornadoes haven't come here, but it is spring, and Hard to believe that we have two more months of school. At least we do. We've been up in late May. So I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Jason Neifer, whose very snappy virtual background always looks a lot better than mine. I had to, I had to move sheets and towels because we've got some packing up going on around me here as we, as we do the show. So, Dr. Neifer, how is life in Big Sky Country today? I'm pretty well, and as it turns out, uh, spring is very much here, so much so that I have all the windows open in my office tonight, and I really look forward to um, the coming weather, um, and my wife and I are having a conversation about, we're not quite ready to resume our international travel schedule yet, but we're talking about maybe, certainly I want to go see my parents soon, um, and uh, uh, I still have to be very cautious because I am what I've called in the past an immunosuppressed American. So I have, uh, by medication, my immunity is is kind of down for the count a little bit. But there's some evidence that I'm developing some antibodies, and I've had two shots of, of, of Moderna, and I hope to get to see my wonderful parents soon. And then we're also maybe talking about uh, taking a road trip somewhere in the southwest and kind of doing some Airbnb surfing uh, to kind of get out of Montana. But... We're not just here to talk about my travel schedule. Um, I'm actually Jason Eifer, the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School. It's located on the beautiful University of Montana campus here in Spring Lake, Missoula, Montana. But tonight, we're going we're gonna to do the EdTech Situation Room. And Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about? We comb the internet for articles that involve technology, but generally have a direct impact, sometimes an oblique impact, but usually a pretty direct impact on education. And we use our educational, our proverbial educational lenses to analyze and critique and sometimes rant about these articles. So tonight's show, which you can access all of our links at edtechsr.com slash links. We've got a Google Doc that has 214 episodes worth. Topics tonight are security, social media, copyright and fair use, pandemic-related, space, Google, Apple, connectivity, digital divide, and the favorite topic of miscellaneous. I will note before I'll toss it to Jason to choose our first topic uh, that we did visit my parents up in Kansas this last weekend, and it was quite joyous. It was It was wonderful, and they had just in the last maybe two weeks opened up their retirement community to take down the security guard gates and whatever the, you know, guard shacks that, that they had uh, taking temps and everything like that and, and limiting access. And then even opening up their, their dining facility um, for, for dining with some guests. So definitely a challenge as we, you know, ease into this transition time of different choices and uh, you know, D- different speeds at which folks are making adjustments, but we're making some adjustments, adjustments in school with dining. Um, we have mandatory chapel uh, every day. And um, anyway, you know, hopefully looking forward to a fall of more normalcy and not having to do the crazy things with what we call flex remote learning and all, all of those kinds of things, quarantining. 
that sort of thing. Where would you like to begin tonight, Dr. Lawford? Well, um, let's see here. Um, let's start, uh, well, let's start with the copyright, uh, uh article you dropped in tonight, because this is a big deal. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so this is an article that involves Google. Uh, this comes from, from NPR, National Public Radio, on April 5th. The headline is Supreme Court hands Google a win over Oracle in multi-billion dollar case. And we have talked on the show on various occasions about copyright and fair use and also, um, you know, about software and patents and, and the ways these things, um, you know, what, what can be copied, what can't be copied. And so the bottom line is, um, Oracle was mad because they developed Java. Google, uh, according to the article, used about 11,500 lines of the Java code. And that may sound like a lot, but that's only about four tenths of a percent of the overall Java code base. Um, and then I love this. Th- this is just awesome for, for those of us that are fair use advocates and, and want, you know, people to know what fair use of, of copyright law in the United States is and exercise those rights. This language is beautiful. Quote, and because Google incorporated that four tenths of a percent in an entirely new and, and quote, transformative code for Android smartphones, that was a fair use under the nation's copyright laws and Oracle is not entitled to payment. So there were some dissenting votes. This was a six to two vote with one Supreme Court justice, um, uh, abstaining from, from the participation. Justice Amy Coney Barrett did not participate in the case. Um, you know, Oracle saying things, they stole Java and spent a decade litigating as only a monopolist can. <laughs> that is exactly why regulatory authorities around the world and the United States are examining Google's business practices. But of course, Google calls it a win for consumers. Um, you know, we've, we've, we saw this with Apple and, and, and Google famously with the smartphone, right? With the touch interface and, and Steve Jobs, one of the, you know, biggest things he was livid about. And I think he said something like he would spend Apple's last penny, you know, fighting them on this, this anger over this. But, you know, at some point there are different technologies that become a mainstream and the, and the amount of use. And then if you use it in a transformative way, this is relevant to teachers. We need to know what fair use constitutes and not be frozen in fear that we can't do anything with materials because they are copyrighted. It depends. And There was a document published in 1986 called the Fair Use Guidelines for Educational Media, which published bright line rules that I know many librarians and others loved because it said, you can't use more than this percent. You can't use more than this many pages. But that's not what the law says. And the law gives four different criteria and it depends on the use and it's it's messier. But this is a big victory for Google and a good one for fair use. So I am judging by your reactions that you feel positive about this as well, Jason. I do very much so. And um, uh, before I jump into the Google thing, it, just a reminder, your librarian would love to talk to you about copyright law. And it's it's weird because in working with teachers over the last uh, you know, 23 years now I, I've been in education. It's, you know, it, a lot of people think that, uh, uh, you have, uh, way more rights in, in, you know, in copyright than you do. And a lot of people think that you have way less rights than you do. And the best way to clarify that is to talk to an expert. And in, in, in almost all cases, your librarian's going to help you out to, to provide that expertise for you. That, that's one of the many things that they provide that is a very relevant service in, in, in 2021 that you may not be thinking about directly uh, uh, in your, your, your building, uh, your district, or even your public library would love to help you with that information. 
information. But I mean, I did keep a close eye on this. I was delighted to see that Google had won. And I was following this in part because um, I do think this would have been very disruptive to a large percentage of uh, the the technology industry. And there were a lot of technology companies that came in on behalf of um, uh, uh, Google in this particular case. And I'm glad to see it was finally resolved. And it's been a long, 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 long time coming. Yeah, absolutely. All right, where to next? Well, sure. Let's pick up some other Google news uh, while we're kind of talking the Googles for a second. First, uh, a a a a rest in peace and a happy trails to LG that announced uh, earlier this week on Monday that they will be out of the cell phone business. And um, the reason why I uh, offer my condolences is because I do think this is a major loss to the Android marketplace. And I have a broader point to make in a moment about where Google, I think, is struggling in the Android arena. But the point I would make is that LG made a lot of really interesting cell phones over time. And for the longest time, I was actually an LG phone user. My favorite phone of all time, uh, even including my current iPhone, which I'm a very, very big fan of, was the LG V20, which was a phone that was released, I think it was in 2016. And the reason why, one of the reasons why I loved uh, um uh, LG phones so much was that they were uh, oftentimes available uh, pretty cheap because they would lose their value very quickly. They would release a flagship phone that a year later would be, uh, uh, you know, used a tenth of the price of um, uh, of of the new phone was a year prior. And this is my LG V20. I love this phone. Um, it was thin. It was light. Um, it had a beautiful large screen on it and I don't have the back cover on here right now because I'm in the middle of a project with it, um, that, you know, it had a replaceable battery, which is something that I enjoy quite a bit and had a wonderful camera. But, uh, the innovation of this particular phone was that in the same year that iPhone got rid of their headphone jack, LG doubled down on it, not just providing a headphone jack, but they integrated an audio processor in here that I unfortunately can't really tell the difference uh, between uh, most, you know, uh, I can tell the like really bad audio I can tell, but good and great audio sometimes is hard for me to hear, but I could hear the difference and love the, the digital audio processor on the LG V20. And they've over the last four or five years, you know, really did try to create interesting phones that maybe weren't necessarily wide market audiences, but spoke to something very particular. And I love that phone. And I was sad to give it up uh, in part because it wasn't getting Android updates and it only received one major upgrade. It should have received two. And that's part of where I think LG struggled. And the point that I would make is that, you know, the power of Android is that it can install on tons of different form factors. And in fact, a lot of interesting Android devices have been released that power TVs and security systems and other means of, of, of pieces. And in fact, at one point, you know, Google had a vision that they could release well-managed Android tablets in schools, for example, that, that never really came to fruition. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I have it up for sale on Swappa right now, but, uh, this phone is the Unihertz. They call it the Atom phone. And it's a phone that's built kind of as a, um, it has a huge battery on it, but it's kind of like a rugged phone. 
I bought it on Kickstarter last year, forgot I had purchased it on Kickstarter, and then it showed up um, earlier this year, or I'm sorry, uh, late last year, and I love this phone. It's really interesting, kind of a brick, but in a good way, and it had a lot of positive benefits to it. You're if not you live find. in Montana, you need a durable phone sometimes, I think. Obviously, when you live in rugged Montana, you need a rugged Android phone, right? So, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but the problem is, is that minus... Samsung, um, and to a lesser extent, uh, Google themselves, there just isn't much successful competition there. And part of it is that they can't, Google can't seem to figure out how to push people to send out upgrades and keep security patches on there. The marketplace hasn't really necessarily created a lot of alternatives. And I still like Android. Right now, I'm much happier with iOS, I will say, as I did move there, uh, you know, a couple months back. But uh, I think it's a sign that they got to figure out what to do with Android because I don't think there's a really clear answer to that at this point. And the one, one thing that's super interesting, and we haven't said this word for a while. Of course, these are being transcribed as we say these words. But Huawei, Huawei, the company that is very innovative in China and, you know, now I guess can't install native Google apps and you know, is, is being blocked in, in this, and we, we're reaching this point. This is not the tech correction. This is like the, you know, the China, U.S., I don't know what. I don't know what we'd have to come up with a, for that. The, the, the great, um, you know, tech and, and geopolitical standoff. It's, it's, I wouldn't call it a new Cold War, but anyway, it's, it's something that has been ongoing through the Trump administration. It's continuing in the Biden administration because it's not just political. I think it's, it's, you know, based on a lot of things that are not just, you know, in the wind of politics here in the United States. There's underlying technologies. There's the, the, the theft of intellectual property. There's cyber war that is continuing to be active. So, yeah, I'm sorry to see them go. One of the things we consistently talk about in many cases when it comes to these kinds of economic issues is that competition benefits consumers. And as we see LG depart, that is probably going to be a sad thing. So I know that there are some other folks creating, you know, some different Kickstarter phones and trying to, to yeah. make some other other phones that can work. But it is pretty hard to, you know, pr- produce a great functioning phone, especially at scale. So it will be interesting to see what you know the trajectory of Android is, as well as these other future different kinds of operating system uh, projects to, to see how those develop. Anything else Google-wise you want to talk about? Yeah, a couple quick ones. Uh, first, Google I.O. is back in May. It'll be a virtual event this year. It's also for free. Um, I'm actually trying to schedule some some uh, maybe uh, regional car travel and maybe some life events in the next couple of months. I'm going to uh, get a little bit of minor surgery later this year, and so I may or may not be able to attend that, but if I can, I will. They usually have really interesting things there about Chromebooks uh, and usually about where they're going with education development, so that's something Something you should keep an eye on for. And then two things that are related to Google and education. First, Chrome Unbox reported on April 2nd that in education accounts only right now may be rolled out to other kinds of Google services. They now allow saving of progress in Google Forms. Now, you have to be signed into account to do this. Otherwise, how could they save your progress, right? But if you start in one or on one computer and move to another computer, uh, then your progress on that form will be saved if it's associated with your 
email address. And uh, the, right now that's only in education. And, and obviously that's for quizzes uh, in particular, the quiz feature in Google Forms. But I thought that was an interesting uh, note. And then Chrome Unbox also reported on Monday that Google Workspace users kind of following up at an article from earlier or a story earlier this year, Google Workspace users will get until early 2022 now with their unlimited storage. They're not going to start enforcing their storage caps uh, for enterprise users until uh, I think it's February 2022. It's supposed to be June 2021, but they're going to extend that out. And just a reminder from our conversation about this earlier this year, while it, it's obviously a big change for Google to head in this direction, a lot of schools, not all, because there's lots of use cases where this is not the case, but a lot of schools really won't see much impact, even though they're they're limiting overall storage in Google Workplace for Education to to a cap, which is, is new for the Google for Education world. Yeah, um, we had a Google event um, in February that was really fantastic. And we've talked about this in regard to Apple. I'm sure that the Google virtual event is probably going to set a high bar for quality and transformativeness in terms of what they're able to bring in a virtual event. The February, which was an education specific event, mentioned this. So it's good to see this, uh, you know, saving within, within, uh, forms come out. This is particularly important in terms of remote learning and connectivity issues and, you know, students having issues and the reliance that so many schools have and teachers have on uh, Google's services and, and apps and things like that. Um, but I think that's great. Maybe someday, uh, in addition to a planned, you know, face-to-face, hopefully in Montana, barbecue reunion with some beverages and barbecue, maybe Jason and I will go to something like Google I.O. Um, that would be pretty cool because they, anyway, it's just always a, it's a neat event. Um, yeah. I mean, you've been to CES, so that's, that's all, that's also kind of a buzz in a whole different way, you know, consumer fo- focusing in Las Vegas. But where, where was the IO? Is it, they've had it in California, I think, haven't they? Near the Google? It's almost always in California. Yeah. yeah. And they, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a really outdoory one. I'm trying to remember where it was at, where it was basically like an outdoor festival. But, um, I, my understanding, if I remember correctly, was that, you know, the problem with an outdoor festival is it's an outdoor festival. It's hot outside. You got to have a lot of water for people and, you know, make sure that you're taking care of, of people's health when you're subjecting them, um, to, you know, hot summer in California in the outdoors. But, um, yeah, uh, it, it, I, I agree. That's, it's a good thing to think about post pandemics. I'd love to be able to go there and lots of interesting happen things happen in the hallways there because, uh, you know, a lot of like Chromebook developers, for example, will, will show up, um, and, you know, look, look at what's next in regards to Chromebooks. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, let me segue us to our space topic because it actually, it's, it's related. It makes me think of it because of conferences. So the fact that, you know, Google and, and Apple and these companies are not, you know, rushing back to face to face conferences, um, you know, I think is is probably uh, something to take note of as we think about the summer and, you know, the kinds of plans that we may, may be making. I, I dropped a couple articles under the headline of space. This one is from April 4th from Space News with the headline, Russia continues discussion with China on lunar exploration cooperation. I mentioned this uh, recently uh, in terms of the announcement that they had said they're going to co-op, that, that announced they're going to cooperate with with 
well, sorry, Russia announced they will not be cooperating with the U.S. on Artemis, which is our uh, moon base. It's actually a, an orbiting platform around the moon. They're going to work with China. They're going to have a face-to-face conference in mid-June, interestingly, uh, that will be uh, in in Russia. And um, <laughs> Elon Musk and uh, Vladimir Putin are invited. They didn't say whether they're going to be attending or not, um, but it'll be in St. Petersburg. And uh, interestingly, they're planning for a base on the south pole of the moon and one that will be more robotic. It doesn't sound like it may have a human presence that'll be constant. And you may think, why the heck are we even talking about this? I love talking about space with my students uh, because number one, I mean, what's been happening with Mars and the rover and here, I think if it's not going to be tomorrow, it's really soon that the helicopter that we've sent, which will be the first, um, you know, human powered aircraft to to fly on the on the surface of another planet. They're going to it just it actually su- survived. I don't think I put this in the show notes, but it survived its first night on Mars by itself, you know, separate separated from the Perseverance rover. It's exciting to talk to. And as I've mentioned to my students, to my fifth and sixth graders, I mean, it's very likely that one or more of them in their whole class at our school is going to go in space, either as a space tourist or as an astronaut. But this is a seismic issue with historic cooperation now between Russia and the United States for over 20 years because we've had humans on the International Space Station for that long. China is poised to have its own space station that it's going to sustain, apparently, you know, constant human habitation in and then this collaboration. So maybe think of it when we talked about face-to-face conferences. Hey, Russia and China are going to push forward. Uh, a lot of other folks aren't. Um but um, that was interesting. Now, I, I think maybe it was two weeks ago or a while back, I mentioned a Kara Swisher interview that is just fantastic on the topic of space with the um, the general who's in charge of, of U.S. Space Command. So this is from March 8th, so it's about a month old. Um, but there's been a whole lot of joking, you know, around Space Force and, you know, from late night comedy shows to this whole, you know, series of the, that, that they made. Uh, but General John Raymond is the person who's interviewed here. Space is so important and space is tied to cyber and cybersecurity is not only something that governments and organizations need to be defending themselves against. We need to defending ourselves and protecting our families as well. So that is an excellent article by Kara Swisher, actually a podcast on her uh, twice weekly podcast called Sway. And then I dropped one more. Actually, this is it. Okay, so I'll drop it in. Uh, this is the, the article about the Ingenuity uh, helicopter, and it survived its first night, and this was an article on CNN. So anyway, if you're not – I told my wife this morning, I said, do we t- even talk about current events with kids anymore? <laughs> like it really frustrates me that there's so many important issues going on. And like, I'll ask our daughter, who's a junior, like they don't really talk about current events or studying the Cold War and U.S. history. And and of course, all those things are important, but there are really important current events to discuss with students. There's different ways to intersect with with these kinds of topics. And, you know, it's it's important for us to inspire the next generation. And there's a lot of awesome tech and robotics and, and you know, uh, engineering that has gone into what's happening in space, but there's also important competition that we may or may not be really aware of. And certainly what's you know been announced with China and Russia and the moon is a sign, sadly, I think, but just a sign of uh, kind of where 
geopolitics and economics and and space, you know, is today in 2021 and is probably going to be for the foreseeable number of years. So, Dr. Neifer, are you going to be investing in any space mining companies? Uh, and how is your SpaceX stock doing? Is that that's your portfolio set? Um, I do not have SpaceX stock. I do have Tesla stock. And the other stock that I am invested in, just full disclosure, is that uh, I did invest in BlackBerry because their operating, real-time operating system, QNX, which is actually something that this is way out there, nerd, um, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, um, I uh, you used people to download QNX when it was kind of an open source platform and um, uh, install it on a machine. And I, that's, that's the kind of things that nerds do on the weekends, right? But, um, uh, QNX is the operating system that was used in the Crew Dragon that, uh, that was, you know, very aggressively covered in the last, uh, or during their test and then their, their, their takeoff to send crew. And I was really interested in that. And I had heard later that that was QNX software. And then I'd also read that Blackberry was pivoting towards QNX as a means of, you know, they're obviously not uh, going to be a, a cell phone, um, uh, a cell phone ma- manufacturer that, that's going to find much success uh, due to the size of their company. But yeah, I am very interested in this. And um, uh, I also think that there's a lot of interesting things here that, um, uh, that w- we need to keep an eye on. And I do think that uh, the earth's future is in a lot of ways tied up where in, in ways that we could perhaps utilize the resources uh, or even space in, in, in other locations. And so um, I thought all these articles were interesting evolutions in that direction. And on a real positive note, uh, astronauts will tell you, and there was a wonderful video that NASA published in January um, on the orbital perspective, it's like 30 minutes long. And I might actually just show that to my kids at some point this year. I've, I've showed an excerpt. But, like, when you can see the Earth, even from low Earth orbit, it you're it is a transformative thing. It is really, really powerful. So I think it's good that here in the next five to ten years, we are very likely with space tourism to see a much larger number of people experiencing what it's like to be in technically outer space. Um, you know, is that going to change <laughs> the ways in which folks have been able to weaponize social media and, you know, help authoritarians rise to power and threaten democracy? See, these are all open questions. This is why we we need uh, our young people to to figure out these issues because there's a lot of a lot of stuff we have to figure out. That's you know, politi- It has technological ties, but it affects us in terms of politics. So, where to next? We are just getting through the topics tonight. We are. Let's talk a little bit of a connectivity. So, Wes, why don't you start with your uh, interesting T-Mobile announcement? Yeah, this is CNET today on April 7th. T-Mobile announces widespread launch of consumer home internet service. And I think we might have mentioned this before because this is something that's been uh, in a pilot project for a while, but now this is going mainstream. $60 a month, unlimited, with speeds up to 100 megabits down, with no data cap. That sounds pretty good. Um, and I don't... I mean, there. this is going to be affected by 5G, but this is not strictly a 5G. It says it takes advantage of T-Mobile's 4G, LTE, and 5G network. So um, you get a 4G, 5G modem rental that doubles as your router. Uh, they say there's no throttling on it. You don't have to be a current T-Mobile customer. If you want to cut the service, you'll just return the router. 
Um, and then actually they put in some helpful numbers that I think we might've mentioned in terms of the pandemic with like, how much bandwidth do you need? You know, but in terms of zoom, uh, they recommend 3.8, basically four megabit, uh, down an upload of three. So basically four up and down for 1080 HD group video chatting. Uh, Netflix recommends five down for, for watching HD 25 megs down for 4k streaming. That's why you don't want a lot of kids doing 4K streaming on your network at school, probably. Um, but I think that's pretty exciting. So it, how's the T-Mobile coverage in Missoula? I know they, they came. You're, you're a T-Mobile customer now, aren't you? Indeed, yeah. I am. Uh, going on four years now, and it was one of the best oh, changes God. that I've ever made. And Where does the time go? I, <laughs> it goes fast, doesn't it? Um, and I, I'd make a couple observations about T-Mobile here. The first one is that my the particular... Um, uh, a signal at my house isn't super great, right? Like, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in an upstairs bedroom. My office is in an upstairs bedroom in addition on the house. And if I go like this, um, I can get, uh, I can get all four bars, right? Or five bars or however many county on here. And, uh, right under us is a, um, is, is, is the primary bedroom and it's in the basement actually or partially underground and I can, I can get a decent signal down there. The rest of my house I really can't, but if you go to the T-Mobile map, it says that my neighborhood, it's a little lighter pink than the darker pink elsewhere, but really a uh, pretty solid and I never have issues getting a signal anywhere in my house, including in the basement basement. Um, and it's, it's been pretty great, but what's been really awesome about T-Mobile for me is that there's just so many extra things they add to it, right? The plan we have gives us free Netflix. The plan we have gives us free passes on a uh, go, go wifi. Um, you get access to, uh, Oingo Boingo, Oingo Goingo. Uh, yeah, it's not on Go Boingo, but you know, it's, well, I think it's, I think it might be Boingo Wireless or something. Yeah, there you go. So, um, you get a free account to that, which the Dead Man's you, Party is not included. Yes, uh, unfortunately. Um, and I was, I thought of other titles that probably aren't appropriate for our family friendly podcast, but the, um, uh, that service is really great when you travel because you can oftentimes get signed into more premium free Wi-Fi with that app. It's just, it's, it's a really, really great service. We really like our T-Mobile service and we're paying about, Almost a third less, and I have a large family plan that has been pretty great. Um, but I've been very, very happy with it as a service, and I do really like the notion of being able to have internet that, uh, you know, is, is over wireless. I think there's something to that. It, a lot of other places on earth use that as a primary means of delivering internet access, and I think it's part of, uh, the, the access, uh, uh, uh solution that we need to get more people access. And in fact, that leads to our second connectivity article really well tonight. The, oh, go ahead, sir. I'm going to do Peggy George's question real quick. Uh, yeah. And then also but chime in. Do you have that thing in the window for T-Mobile that will give you better coverage? Like you put it on in the, in the window facing the tower. That's the best. We've had one for a while and I, we got it free from them. Uh, so it, there's a, it's like a repeater kind of. So we have one that's sort of deeper in our house and then there's one that's in the window. And I've, I, I need to message them to see if there's an upgrade. Cause I think we've probably had this thing at least four or five years and they probably have better technology. AT&T has something, if you have not great uh, coverage, that, what is it called? I've forgotten. But it it's diff- it's a different technology because it actually plugs into your broadband connection. It's called an M-cell. And it makes an actual cell tower signal 
off of your broadband, but the T-Mobile technology is different. But I think it really is very significant that T-Mobile says they're not throttling this um, because like on your tethering and stuff like that, I mean, you know, there's throttling. And then that's a huge consideration to say, hey, can I can I live on this? Right. Because if you are, you know, working virtually, you know, and you reach this data cap and suddenly you can't Zoom call anymore, that, that's a big deal. In the chat, Peggy asks, what can you do if you think your cable company is throttling your access? I would say first contact them, take a look at the specifics of your plan. Um, in our case, we're with Cox Communications, and this is something that they've had as part of the plan that you have a data cap, but they didn't enforce it. And actually, I think Basically, during the pandemic, you know, they started enforcing it with our son finally moving to Houston. And I'm not saying that like I want him to leave. It's sad, actually. Uh, but it's good. It's good. The bird leaves the nest again. Um, we're not, we're not going to probably need the additional data uh, because he's been working full time since July on top of the, you know, data consumption that we've had. So I'm going to probably be able to adjust our bill a little bit and save a little bit of money, but see what the terms of your contract are. Uh, be, and also, you know, when you log into your account for us, I can see month to month and there's a graph and it, you know, and it shows what that is. So they should be forthright with you in terms of, a, of a data cap and specify what happens when you reach your cap, you know, if you're throttled or if you're just charged more money in our case, I think they just charge you more money and they let you keep, you know, consuming bandwidth, but they're going to sock it to you. So yeah, Peggy said she's a cox as well. So I would expect that you probably have a data cap, um, and then the throttling may more be on just the, the speeds. Like they're only let us have 30 up, even though I'm positive the connection supports a symmetric, you know, yeah. we, we could be, we're, we're paying for a gig down. We should be able to get a gig up, but they simply won't give it to us. Uh, that throttling, I think for, for Cox at least is a function of the tier that you're on. Our son is going into a new apartment complex, which has Google, um, AT&T fiber. And I'll have to get the exact specifics, but he's paying let something in the ballpark of, of about 60, 50, 60 bucks. And he's going to have 300 down and 30 up, I think. So for T-Mobile to say $60 a month for a hundred down, that's pretty good. Yep, absolutely. And I have 20 up. Uh, I have uh, 400 down, 20 up, which is pretty decent for Missoula, but I mean, it, 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 it is limiting to, especially if you have multiple people on uh, conference calls or, you know, you're broadcasting worldwide on a Wednesday night and your wife wants to also uh, go to her book club, uh, which we've had to do uh, uh, pieces like that as well. Okay, where to next, kind sir? Well, I think you had one more connectivity article, actually. Oh, yeah, I, I, I thought I talked about it. So, interesting article from, this is uh, April 2nd's New York Times that goes into a little more detail about Biden's plan to fix uh, the Internet in the United States as part of his large infrastructure plan that was announced last week. We mentioned this briefly last week, but uh, I would encourage you to read the full article because it goes into some detail about uh, you know, why this is the case. But basically, the author talks about how Biden seems to be approaching this correctly, 
right? That it's not just the notion of, you know, it, there's connectivity problems and we're going to throw a bunch of money at it, that it's trying to empower multiple solutions to try to fix this. And I think we've actually talked about this in some detail in the past is that there's probably not one way to fix the internet in America. There's probably multiple ways to fix the internet in America. And a lot of people will make comparisons between the United States and, and, and other uh, European countries, for example. But remember, the United States is huge. It's a massive sized country and we have tens of millions of people that live in very rural areas and then tens and tens and tens of millions more that live in just rural areas that you're not going to be able to get fiber to every one of those folks. And what I'm excited about with folks like T-Mobile offering unlimited Internet access options with 5G networks is that it is a lot cheaper to put up a cell tower. You have to obviously do uh, uh, some service pieces there to be able to make sure that's maintained, et cetera. But it's a lot easier to put up cell towers that could cover a lot of, 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 distance uh, in many directions to then provide potential broadband uh, to users in very rural areas than it would be to wire up those areas. You take that, you take uh, us, uh, uh, Starlink. Starlink, thank you. I was going to keep calling it Spacelink, but that's actually the other company. Um, uh, Starlink is, is a potential. And then they talked about in this article that they really also want to empower something that in the past has actually been legally criticized, which is uh, local co-ops putting together sometimes you know, uh, patch together solutions to provide additional broadband opportunities. They really want to empower cities and, and towns to make their own co-ops to, to, to find their own internet if that's what works best for them. And so I'm very excited by this. I think that, uh, you know, uh, the numbers vary on, on, on the individuals that have unreliable internet. Some estimates say upwards of 40% of Americans have, uh, internet that, that is not considered robust enough to, to, to do education or business work on it. That's a real problem, I think, for, you know, um, the world's most industrialized nation. We need to find a way to fix that. And I, I have a lot of hope that the Biden administration's investment in infrastructure will head uh, head us in the right direction. The definition of infrastructure is quite broad. And to former debaters that would debate definitions, there's a lot of things fitting under that infrastructure uh, umbrella. Uh, we want to say hello to some of our new live viewers, I think, that are uh, in with us and remind you that you can get links from today's show. We're sharing those as we talk about them, but you can also access them, which we frequently are not able to get to all of them at edtechsr.com slash links. We have the most remaining articles under the headlines of security and social media. And we don't actually have the tech correction as a topic today, which I know some of you have lived in fear that this was becoming the tech correction show. But um, let's pick up a kind of a weird one that I enjoyed. And this is some new technology, which I'm sure Dr. Neifer probably is the master of already. But uh, it has to do with with crypto but not currency, something called NFT artwork. So I put this under the miscellaneous category. It's an article from last month on March 26th from Quartz, and it's called The Carbon Footprint of Creating and Selling an NFT Artwork. And one of the reasons I put this in here is I've seen headlines about this, like, you know, Twitter CEO sells tweet for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and other people are are selling, like, an animated GIF that you can buy and own. And it's like, what the heck is that? What? How do you do that? Um, because we've generally thought that the digitization of works, for instance, artwork, you know, would mean 
folks are, are not going to make money because it's going to, it's, you know, Nicholas Negroponte being digital 2001. Once you've digitized things into zeros and ones before the, I guess, quantum computer age, um, you know, it's, it's virtually free to transfer that around the world on the internet. So this article uh, by Aaron Davis, the reason I like it is it goes through these different scenarios. It's about carbon footprint uh, and it compares an artwork that you would sell uh, at a point and click sale and the person's going to, you know, need to pack up the work and drive to the, to the shipping place. And it's going to fly around a little bit. And you know, how much, how much carbon uh, or CO2 does, does that actually produce? And, and the answer uh, for that, you know, point and click uh, delivered through FedEx is, is about, you know, three fourths a kilogram of CO2. That doesn't really mean a great deal to me, but the thing I, and so the, the overall point of this is that when you use technologies that are, are like, we've heard of cryptocurrency mining and we've probably heard about lots and lots of electricity and power being utilized. There was an article I think in Wired, probably a few years ago that was talking about how weird this has been for college dorms because they basically don't charge kids for electricity. And some students actually set up their own cryptocurrency mining operations, you know, and utilizing huge amounts of electricity from the university. I mean, even needing to go to like Lowe's and Home Depot to get their, you know, special coolers and fans and things like that, that were cooling down their systems. Cause there's a lot of electricity that's utilized when you try and, you know, mine through these computer programs, cryptocurrency. So creating what is called an NFT. Um, and an NFT is a, um, non-fungible token. Uh, and so they describe this and, and break it down that there's a, there's a couple ways to produce these, but the main way that, that, that the, um, the NFT is created is the miners basically have to try and guess what the next uh, code is in the blockchain. And then once they guess it, they, they're able to add to that blockchain and then they're able to sell it and they make money. But it, it takes a huge amount of of energy to do that. And and part of this is also undefined <clears throat> because it's in terms of how much how much electricity it it uses. But they say one hundred and twenty eight kilograms of carbon dioxide would be consumed just for a single sale using this NFT. Um, there are different ways that you can use the crypto programs, crypto art. Um, and then you talk about how to respond to that. And one of them might be just not participating in it. Um, but, but there are, you want to talk about something really geeky that probably none of your friends are going to be able to, you know, I don't know, maybe have an intelligent conversation about, not that that's very fun, but proof of work versus proof of stake. There's two different ways with cryptocurrency to go about this and proof of stake uses far less energy. And it sounds like it basically is that if you have been doing this for a while, the more you're invested in the cryptocurrency, it's more likely that you're going to be the winner. But I have not, I don't think we have at all talked about NFTs. I've seen these articles and I'm like, what the heck is that? You bought an animated GIF? What does that even mean? But by using blockchain, I guess, and, and one of these, um, you know, exchanges, you're able to say you are the owner of this. And it's weird. I mean, you want to talk about how money isn't real. What, what is that? I own an animated GIF. 
animation. Yeah. Audio, uh, how many animated gifts have you purchased? And is this what you'd like all listeners of the EdTech Situation Room to know? Is at the top of your wish list for Santa Claus in 2022? Um, well. A full disclosure, um, I own Dogecoin. So Dogecoin is one of the cryptocurrencies that it's, it's, it, it was started as a joke several years ago. And then Elon Musk has been super into Dogecoin. And I just, as almost a joke, almost a joke, I invested a, a little bit of money in Dogecoin um, a, a, a couple of months ago, and I'm doing very well on, on my Dogecoin. Let's, let's put it that way. I'm, I'm not making gazillions. I don't have, um, uh, 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 the name of the two brothers from the Facebook thing. Uh, I don't have that, their amount of Bitcoin or anything, right? But I do own, um, I think it's 35,000 Dogecoin. So, um, I, I've got me some, some, some Dogecoin. I don't really understand uh, non-fungible tokens yet, even though I'm trying really hard to, because I, uh, well, I, I know digital artists, right? And I've actually quizzed them a little bit in, in the back channel on uh, some social media platforms. In fact, one of my dearest and, 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 and best former students is a, she's actually in a, a um, uh, graduate school program right now after spending, um, uh, most of the last 10 years working in digital art. And, um, she, I I'm hoping she'll explain this to me because all of her work is, is, is usually digital, digital, not physical in form. Although I do have a painting of hers in my home. Um, and I'm hoping to connect with her soon in part because I want her to explain this to me. The part that I think I understand, um, there was an article the other day, um, uh, there's a meme called over, excuse me, overly attached girlfriend. And there's a woman that's behind that called, uh, and I can't remember her last name, Lania is her first name, but um, she uh, sold the meme image, like the original meme image that she created. And by auction, it went for $411,000 to someone that uh, it's apparently there's a, there's a group called 3F, uh, that has been collecting not only NFTs, but also buying up catalogs of, uh, artists in part to own a lot of uh, digital intellectual property. And the reason why I mentioned the Overlaid Hedge Girlfriend sale was that the, the articles that I've read about NFTs the last couple of days suggest that by owning the NFT, right? So you get some say, in, in what happens to that image, you have rights to that image and that somehow that can do something for, you know, when images spread like memes do across the internet. And, um, uh, I can't remember, uh, who it was that, uh, um, we spoke, but one of the people that kind of it, it didn't want to become a meme, it became a meme said that, you know, ignoring the money that, that these creators can make from auctioning off the NFTs, uh, that, you know, the, well, the tweet I'm reading is from, or her name's Allison Harvard. I don't really recognize the meme, which is money aside, minting the creepy NFT allowed me to authenticate and stake my claim on my image. For years, they have circulated the internet without me ever having a say on how they were used. I feel like I got to take my power back today. So thank you all. It means a lot. And she sold, uh, her two for, and to the same group, the 3F music, um, uh, for 72,000 and 82,000. And that's not a wholly unreasonable number when you consider if it's one of the very popular memes and the image spreads like wildfire that, you know, there has been economic activity driven off of that. I just don't get yet how Miss Harvard, right, who is, is clearly, uh, you know, trying to stake a claim to her image, which I think is, is a quite legitimate, 
um, uh, uh, piece of, of, uh, well, her identity, right? Like that, that monetizing that I think is quite reasonable. I just don't know how you get your identity back in that way, right? Do you yeah. then get to set to sue? Do you, is there a way to, um, uh, uh, is there a way to, you know, there, how, do you, how do you license it basically? How do you yeah. license and allow for the, the reuse of that and then be, be compensated as the owner of the NFT and the creator? Right. Yeah. And it's the NBA that, that has also started this discussion as well because they've sold a lot of NFTs in yeah. the marketplace for, you know, great shots, right? Michael and, Jordan slam dunk at this particular game or whatever. Yeah. And so there's something here and I obviously, well, there's obviously something here, right? But I guess I would also say that I, I want to see where this goes. I don't think it's the worst thing to, um, for people that want to monetize creative works, right? And, and there's obviously a debate uh, about if you don't want to monetize them, you should have the opportunity to do that too. That's the whole, uh, thing behind, you know, open culture movements. But, um, I, I'm curious and it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know where it's going yet, but it's certainly very interesting. Well, and I think the whole climate change use of carbon dioxide, carbon footprint is really, it, it's important. Um, yeah. Because, you know, there's there some crazy numbers when you look at cryptocurrencies and what's going to be required to continue to mine bitcoins, you know, in terms of how hard it gets, you know, as it, as it goes further. Probably not the Dogecoins. Uh, Peggy George has come to our rescue, as she often does. Uh, Kara Swisher has a podcast that was back in on March 22nd of this year about NFTs. So we'll check that out. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Where do you like to go next, sir? Uh, I just want to do a quick uh, Apple article. Uh, this is from 9to5Mac on April 1st. Uh, there is a new feature in iOS 14.5. That's the next version of iOS that I believe is released at the end of April. But it only works on iPhone 11, so not the new 12 or anything previous to that. But it's a, it's a new ba- battery recalibration a uh, uh, feature which essentially analyzes your battery and allows you to keep a close eye on as your battery degenerates over time. And obviously, you know, we reported this a, a couple of years back that Apple got into a little bit of hot water because they uh, ended up scaling back the speed of phones as the battery degenerated over time. And, you know, uh, uh, since the beginning, Apple has been sealing uh, batteries into phones. It means that it's sometimes complicated uh, because the, the battery is not really a consumable anymore. You have to sometimes break into the phone to be able to switch out the battery. Latest iOS model, or I'm sorry, latest uh, iPhone and iPad models, it's so much so that you, you have to literally break the device to get into it unless you um, uh, uh, find a way to do it in the official way. And in fact, if you go and exchange your phone, it's more likely now that Apple will not replace your battery. They will literally just exchange your phone and then send it back to the factory for a new battery. But I like the notion that they're taking some responsibility um, for giving you more data about your battery that I think encourages users, I think, to use battery technology uh, a, a little more in a little more nuanced way. Uh, me personally, um, I bought a used iPhone XS earlier this year. It's a great phone, best phone I've owned. Um, and there is a great feature in the settings that will tell you the, the battery health, but because I did buy a year and a half used phone, the battery health came at only 86%. 
on this phone. I know it gets way better battery life than I'm getting out of it right now, right? Um, and, and at some point, I might take advantage of the Apple battery service. Uh, it doesn't really matter in, you know, my extended quarantine because, uh, you know, I have a charger with me, you know, close at hand all day long. But I think it's really great that Apple's building more tools to give you data about your batteries over time. All right. Well, we are within 10 minutes of the top of the hour, uh, and we still have a number of articles. We usually do finish with some we haven't covered, uh, especially under social media and security. Um, why don't we let's do a couple uh, social media ones. Um, I'm going to do one that I missed entirely in, in uh, November. And of course, it's easy to miss tech news. There's so much stuff going on. Uh, fleets. I did not even know this is a thing. Twitter has a has a, a feature called disappearing tweets there they were available for everyone starting in November of 2020 and <laughs> it's to try to encourage you to share more things that you wouldn't want part of your permanent digital footprint hmm doesn't sound like a great idea but uh i guess kind of copying snapchat a little bit um you know everyone can start fleeting it says and then also on in terms of twitter i mentioned this one in the show a while back. Oh, well, there's the, there's the Jack Dorsey, uh, NFT. So I'll drop that in. Uh, yes, Jack Dorsey sold the first tweet for $2.9 million. Bridge Oracle CEO paid almost $3 million for that. What is up with that? Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but the other one that was involving Dorsey, um, was from Market Watch back on February 22nd. And of course, we hear Dor- Dorsey, who's the CEO of Twitter, say all kinds of things. Uh, but he was saying back then that Twitter was considering implementing subscriptions and other forms of payment. The headline is tech CEO says Twitter needs to go all in on subscriptions. Uh, it's very interesting to follow what's happening. Um, oh, gosh, what's the name of the I've <laughs> I've set up a newsletter that I've never sent out yet. Uh, I was just tired of paying MailChimp. Um, and I put a, what is, what is this? Um, it is on Substack. There's a number of journalists now, you know, there's Patreon for micropayments and supporting people or creators. Substack is now a, a pretty successful model for journalists being able to, again, get subscribers. And I think that's the bandwagon that, um, you know, Twitter's wondering if they should be jumping on. So, Dr. Neifer, were you aware of fleets? Are you fleeting? And are you <laughs> looking forward to cashing in on the millions that are probably waiting for you if you just would only turn on the subscription option for your Twitter channel? Well, Wes, um, I have fleeted once and I saw, I got it early and I was like, uh, this is just like stories on Instagram. And so I, 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 I did fleet once. It was a, it was a picture of my dog. Because really, when I'm posting pictures, a good nine out of ten of them are of my dog or my cat or a travel location, right? I mean, it's it's an interesting service in the same way that stories are interesting on Instagram, but it's stories on Instagram, right? Like, if I want to share stories, I'd go to Instagram, and that's not what I want to share on Twitter. I want to share 200 and something odd characters at a time, right? So, for me, I think that's a, 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 not that interesting. Um, I, I don't think it's a terrible idea to offer subscriptions for, for Twitter in that there are people I probably would pay 
to to follow, right? There's lots of independent journalists. One of the things that I love about 2021 that it doesn't make up for the fact that, you know, the internet did really shake up journalism in a way that we haven't figured out our way out of yet. But there are a lot of independent writers, a lot of independent video producers, a lot of independent content creators and experts that I probably would pay. I'm not saying a lot for, but in the, the Patreon model, right? Pitch a couple dollars to someone that I know is going to give out good content. And, you know, when you click on ads on Twitter or when you see an ad on Twitter, that's not paying the producers, that's paying the platform. And that's a different deal, right? And I do think that some people have Twitter accounts that are worth paying for. I hope that this leans more towards micropayments, kind of the Patreon model. I could see very popular tweeters that are producing content and sharing it via that mechanism doing very well. If I could agree to pay, you know, X, Y, and Z producer 50 cents a month, $1 a month to be able to get access to their account. But, you know, if the content's worth it, if content it sells, I think that's a, another way to help fund content creators, whether it's more on the traditional news side or maybe more on the more modern entertainment side. Last Twitter article I'll throw in. This is from Gizmodo Today. Headline, Trump's Twitter not even allowed to return in archival format for nerds. Um, as many of us are probably aware, the National Archives, the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, which is the government agency tasked with preserving and maintaining the records of federal government, uh, needs to document all the past tweets of presidents. But that particular Twitter channel is completely not only banned from from tweeting actively now, its archives are banned as well, so no one can retweet those tweets, and they're going to have to figure out their own way to archive those, and um, pretty fascinating, and man, it's the power of Twitter, you know, it, and it truly is something that is, is, is used and really really challenging and different. Now it's not even the right word in some terrible ways, you know, and some, some really uh, you know, terrible ways as far as harassment and, you know, there, there's bad, there, there's darkness with Twitter, but there's also, you know, so much good there as well. Um, so pretty fascinating. I will say that I never anticipated as far as the trajectory of where we've been going as a nation and with social media and things that our president would be, would be banned from, from Twitter. Um, so I heard more rumblings, I think a couple shows ago, we talked about Trump had mentioned maybe starting his own social network, but then there were some articles saying that's really hard to do, especially if you want to get a lot of people on it. Cause if it's really going to have traction, it's got to have a lot of people on it. So I found that interesting. Jason, do you do anything to archive your tweets? Um, have you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's, I think you can download your tweets, right? I think that's a thing, right? Um, and I could, uh, maybe I have done it, although I don't remember doing so. I, you know, a part of it is that my early Twitter days weren't that interesting. I didn't really get it at first, to be honest, in part because, uh, well, I mean, a differentiator between maybe 2008 West Fryer Twitter user and 2008 Jason Eifert Twitter user is I just didn't, I wasn't engaged with anyone then, right? Like if you were at a, a, a if you were at a conference or training and you tweeted out, you were likely to get a response back because you were engaged with that early community in ed tech before I wasn't really able to plug into that. I, 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 I tried that at trainings before. I used to teach a lot about social media to teachers to give a sense of kind of what was next amongst uh, both them and their students. And I wouldn't even get tweets back, even though I had followers, right? And I, I, 
uh, it's it's a different game than for for me now. So when I go back and see old tweets, it's just like ugh, like it's it feels it feels dated and like like that I don't get it. So yeah, I just I tend to I I don't know if it was 2015 or 13 when I first was at Montana or one of those first conferences and you had the bear trapping session, right? You got to yeah. trap like a your bear trap for your information. You know, Twitter be- has become that for me. And yeah, me the, too. The, the tool I use to archive my own and search it you know, no longer can work because of the API. Well, hey, we're at the top of the hour. We're going to have to carry forward, I think, our security articles. There was a little Facebook hack, but we'll talk about that later. Um, Jason, Geek of the Week. Uh, mine, I, I I looked quickly, and I thought I had mentioned this before, but I don't think I have. Uh, if you are an Android person, um, one of the cool things you can do with older Android devices that are no longer getting updated is utilize uh, a third-party software. You can actually install a third-party version of Android and keep it fresh and up-to-date. And one of the ways, the reason why I have my V20 phone, my four-year-old V20 phone, is that I am going to install a fresh version of Android via something called Lineage OS which is actually the second uh, reiteration of a longstanding uh, Android distribution that, that installs on many, many, many phones. And they just updated to the latest version, which is Android 11. And so I'm going to keep this hardware going a little longer, uh, mostly because it's a fun, nerdy project. But if you have an old Android phone at home, go to lineageos.org. It's not always as easy as just downloading instructions to be able to, to do it. A lot of phones are tied up with security uh, that, that, that disallow this particular process. Process, but if you like to tweak and you like to, uh, you know, do nerdy stuff and have an old Android phone sitting around, lineageos.org. Fantastic. And then Peggy's dropped into our chat how to download your Twitter archive. So check that out if you uh, – we'll put that in the show notes. Um, mine – oh, shoot. There's Linear Archive again because I didn't copy the right link. Uh, my uh, Geek of the Week is a podcast, but it was a Sunday read. So the Daily is sometimes reading articles, and I think it's like a 53-minute listen, uh, so it's a long article. The original article is called uh, – can I not even scroll through it? The Beauty of 78.5 Million Followers. And it's by Vanessa Gregoria, this, uh, from March 23rd. But it was featured this Sunday on The Daily. And this is kind of a mind-blowing one, which has led to some great conversations this week with my fifth and sixth graders. Uh, let's just say the, 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 the influencers on TikTok and YouTube – that the kids know about and adults have absolutely no clue about is a, is a very rich arena for conversation. Um, we are looking at doing a, a parent university with a panel of high school students now in May that is going to be focused on something to the effect of TikTok, YouTube, um, identity or influencers, identity and self-esteem because the whole, you know, cosmetics industry, the way in which we have a fabricated concept, a distorted perception of, of beauty. It's been manipulated for years. There's something called Instagram face. You know, there's these apps like Facetune and man, it is, it's just pretty hard to grow up today as a, as a teen and a preteen. And there's some really good stuff to talk to our, our kids about whether they're our kids, our grandkids, our students. And so I highly commend that article. So Dr. Neifer, where can folks find you when you are not here on Wednesday night, generously sharing your time with me and others who are listening to the EdTech Situation Room? 
Well, I share tweets for free at my Twitter account, TechSavvyTeach, and that's really the best place to find me. You can also uh, find more of my work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education at blog.ncce.org, and then also my website, which really just has contact information for me, nifer, N-E-I-F-F-E-R.com. And you, sir. Very good. Uh, my new answer to that is westfriar.com slash after. Uh, I've got links to Twitter and blogs and curriculum and other things like that. Periodic recipes on Instagram as well. I do like to look at food on Instagram. Well, this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We appreciate Peggy and those who have joined us live, let us know if you listen to the show later, uh, reach out to us on Twitter. That's really the best way. Check out all of our show notes on edtechsr.com slash links. And it, whether you're finding this on YouTube or your favorite podcatcher, we encourage you to subscribe, write a review of us. I don't think we say that very often, but sure, do that. I think that, you know, lets other people know about the show. Tell people that you listen, uh, but uh, reach out. Let us know if you've got questions. And we look forward to seeing you again. Until then, we encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. Be careful out there, folks. It's a dangerous world. Good night.